0: Please be seated. If you have a Bible, now would be the best time to open it to the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, We are on our way toward the conclusion of this in uh, probably the next two or three weeks. But today we are in chapter 19 and we are continuing with... The life of David, a man after God's own heart, and um, it's been very interesting looking at David uh, in this text. Uh, Today he returns back as king. He had a coup due to his son Absalom, exercised a successful coup. David was in exile east of the Jordan River and uh, now he's going to return home as it were but he is faced with problems uh, that are beyond any human ability to deal with Um, uh, so in this text we will see as we begin reading in verse 9 of chapter 19 and I'll, be, I'll begin with uh, the last of verse 8 here as in the text. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priest. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last one to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers." You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me, and more also, if you are not the commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, So they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shammai, the son of Girah, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba the servant of the house of Saul with his 15 sons and his 20 servants rushed down to the Jordan before the king and they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure and Shemai, the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king let not my lord hold me guilty Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet the Lord my king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? It's kind of an Old Testament way of saying, Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go out with me, Mephibosheth? HE ANSWERED, MY LORD, O KING, MY SERVANT DECEIVED ME, FOR YOUR SERVANT SAID TO HIM, I WILL SADDLE A DONKEY FOR MYSELF, THAT I MAY RIDE ON IT AND GO WITH THE KING, FOR YOUR SERVANT IS LAME. HE HAS SLANDERED YOUR SERVANT TO MY LORD THE KING, BUT MY LORD THE KING IS LIKE THE ANGEL OF GOD. DO THEREFORE WHAT SEEMS GOOD TO YOU. FOR ALL MY FATHER'S HOUSE were but men doomed to death before my lord the king but you set your servant among those who eat at your table what further right have I then to cry to my king and the king said to him why speak any more of your affairs I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land and Mephibosheth said to the king oh let him take it all since my lord the king has come safely home now Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Menahaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servants taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of the singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return that I may die in my own city city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Kimham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall go over with me and I will do for him whatever seems good to you and all that you desire of me for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him, and the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all of the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan, and all David's men with him? All the men of Judah answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense? Or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you today for this text, We know that this uh, text is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, and it is useful to us for reproof, for guidance, for correction, for establishment in righteousness. How we pray today that your Holy Spirit, who inspired this text, would also open our eyes to see the glory and beauty of the truth and move our hearts to be obedient with joy And we pray this in Christ's name, amen. Now that's a rather long scripture reading, but here's my essential bottom line of this text. It's my essential bottom line about life altogether in this world. Were it not for the kingdom of God, and were it not for Jesus Christ holding all things together, this world would totally be gone. The church would be gone. The people of Israel would be gone. That's how messy things are. And they were messy then just as they are messy now. That's about all, about the best that humanity, apart from the inbreaking of the powers of the age to come, the kingdom of God, that's about how much hope we have. And uh, I remember when I first planted this church in 1988, and in the year 1899, not 1899, (laughs) seems like it, Uh, in the year 1989, we uh, had our first service, we had a good body gathered together, things looked like everything was going great, and then all of a sudden there were just rumors and division and people talking and... uh, Things being said that were not true Uh, I was approached by a group with seven legal pages of everything that was wrong with me and and uh, then it hurt my feelings now I would just laugh at it and say is that all you got (laughs) just seven pages but anyway that all happened and I remember going home with Pam after all this information we had about 50 people leave the church you know they were saying things like I slept till noon I have never slept to noon in my whole life I would love to sleep to noon <laughs> but I never somehow that was on there it, it's like they took our children in an isolation cell and interviewed them what does your mom and dad really do what do they really say behind closed door it was silly but it hurt my feelings but long story short I remember looking at Pam saying, I don't think we're gonna be here in about three or four months. I think this thing is done. I called the denomination. I said, I think this thing is done. I think we've failed. I don't look for it to uh, work at all. And I remember just feeling hopeless, sitting in a dark room at home, feeling like uh, the ultimate failure and just crying out to God. I was having a pity party And my wife was gracious enough to attend the pity party and be there with me. And I remember just absolutely feeling like the only thing holding this church together is chewing gum, baling wire, and duct tape. And I'm running out of all of that. And you know what? From that moment, from that low, it was as if (laughs) the wind of God, the Holy Spirit, began to blow And all of a sudden, out of all of that chaos and mess, formed one of the most beautiful churches I've ever been a part of. And uh, I just thought, well, out of the hopelessness, everything I was hoping in, which was myself, my gifts, you know, I wasn't nearly as humble then as I am now. And uh, I thought I really had something and I thought I really had a lot to give. But it was all falling apart. That is exactly what's going on in this text. Where do you go for hope when everything around you is falling apart? This nation already has within it the seeds of division, which ultimately happens. The next king up, which is Solomon, divides into the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And we're beginning to see that because of Absalom's actions and God saying the sword will never depart from your house, David, but he also meant the sword will never depart from your nation, David. There's going to be division. The Israelites, the northern tribes, were very upset that David here turns to the southern tribes and uh, appears to give them first dibs on ushering him back. There were lots of questions in people's minds that they didn't have the answer to. And when people have questions and no answers, they come up with stuff that isn't always the best. And so let's look at this text a little more closely as we consider this particular episode in the life of David. David. David's return to Jerusalem was marked by continuing strife and conflict within Israel. One of the key issues, which appears at the beginning of chapter 19, is who should bring David back to the land. The whole section is framed by notices about divisions between Israel and Judah. We see it in the opening verses. We see it in the closing verses. There's a lot of bickering. The whole section is framed by that. And with this, within this frame and this passage, there are three encounters that David has on the way back to the throne. He meets with Shammai, Mephibosheth, and Barzillai, three familiar people we've met before. And so the links are obvious. And given this structure, we can draw immediately from the text some c- conclusions about the point of these individual encounters. The large-scale political point of this entire chapter was David's return to the throne, but there are practical political problems with his return. Here are the questions that must have fomented in everybody's mind. Would David be able to regain Israel's confidence and love and the hearts that Absalom had stolen away? His son had uh, betrayed him in every way and stolen the hearts of the nation and the hearts of the men went after Absalom in particular. How could David get that back? Could he regain that? How would he deal with those who were traitors to his cause? Would David return and restore his allies to positions of leadership Would he unleash harsh reprisals against his adversaries? Um, Would David act wisely as he did when he first became king to heal the divisions within the nation, particularly in uh, relation to Saul and his following? Um, How David deals with these problems have to be in everyone's mind there at that time. And... David's actions as we watch him seem to be something of a mixed bag, which is true of almost everyone. He did some really smart things. He did some really wise things. He showed a lot of mercy and tenderness toward those who had treated him in the most awful way. He dealt very well with his enemies, but he was a little less careful in dealing with his allies, and that would ultimately be somewhat of his undoing. Because of all of that, and in spite of his best efforts to reunite reunite the kingdom, animosity among the tribes continued. And chapter 20 will record another insurrection. And this is a real insurrection. As David began to return, factions in Israel surfaced. The men of Israel had returned home. We saw that in verse 8b. They had gone back home after the war and they were wondering uh where or even who the king was absalom's gone they followed him he's dead yet king david had not returned to the land and they were discussing whether they should take initiative to bring him back and there were good arguments going on for uh, that to occur um Uh, It seemed to be a wise thing for the northern tribes to at least go out and greet David. And if they were fearful of reprisals, receiving him back into the land would demonstrate their renewed loyalty and serve as sort of a pledge of allegiance. Even if they didn't fear that David would take vengeance... Uh, participating in his return to the capital would be a good way to ingratiate themselves to him. So northern Israel, the 10 tribes, were looking for a way to ingratiate themselves to David in a political fashion. They had lost, by the way, 20,000 people. Some of their cousins, some of their families must have died in battle. And to celebrate the one who had led the uh, armies that slaughtered your kin was distasteful at best. Unable to resolve these different considerations, the tribe of Israel's remained where they were. Meanwhile, David appealed to the tribe of Judah. Now, scholars are pretty much divided over whether or not David's appeal to the tribe of Judah was a mistake. Uh, I would say the majority believe it was, of course, the scholar I like the best is Ralph Davis, and he said it's naive to say that David made a mistake here. Uh, let's, let's talk about it. All the people that are in his upper echelon are from the tribes of Judah, and David himself was from the tribe of Judah. And so in many respects, it only made, made uh, sense for him to start there. So he reminds them that he is bone of their bone and flesh of their flesh, and he claimed that they should be the first to welcome him back. And so David's appeal to Judah ended up as something of a provocative move, uh, move if you look at the Israelites' response in verses 41 to 42. But uh, part of the pretext for Absalom's rebellion was that David showed favoritism to Judah. And now as he returned to his kingdom, it looked as if he was still showing favoritism to Judah. David's message to the men of Judah provoked a response, and they came to Gilgal to meet him. By the way, Gilgal is a very historic place. Gilgal was the first place that Israel camped when they entered the land under Joshua, and the allusion suggests that David's return was sort of a new post-exilic conquest, like the conquest in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Others weren't happy that the men of Judah were getting dibs on the king. So they hurried past Gilgal all the way down to the ford of the Jordan. And at the same time, David installed Amasa as the new chief of his army. David had probably figured out Joab's treachery at this point, especially regarding Absalom. But David wanted to show us that he was not bearing grudges against Absalom's allies, and so Amasa had led the rebel troops of Absalom against David. And by receiving him back into the army and giving him command, David offers a grand gesture of reconciliation. There's uh, a real consideration here when you think about him making Amasa, the one who had led the rebellion and the coup, and came to attack David as being installed now as the commander of his armies. David is trying to consolidate the power in the nation. He's trying to bring together Israel and Judah. And there are all kinds of political implications by everything he says, every move he makes, everything he thinks and does. And so he has to pay careful attention. So he goes to Gilgal and he encounters some of the people he met on his way out of the land. But there was a real contention between Israel to the north and Judah to the south, two tribes, 10 tribes to the north, over the way it was handled when David came back to the throne. And so this is a time of chaos. This is a time when people are looking for a sense of some sort of power and connection and there's nothing solid to pin your hopes on. But David is doing, as, as it were, the best that he can as a king, and he had chops in this regard of bringing together people who were alienated. And so this is all leading somewhere. I know it's pretty detailed, and if you're not reading a lot about the Old Testament narratives, You might be looking out the window or looking at your phone or thinking other things, which I might be doing too. But there is a point to all of this. We'll get there soon. David uh, then begins to meet groups, uh, three people on his way back. And they're three pretty important people in the scheme of things. So he was back seated at the gate. That means he's between the walls in Israel and he's exercising the position there, his position there as king and judge. And so as he's coming back, uh, he meets a guy named Shammai. And you remember Shammai from a previous chapter was among the men of Israel who met David at the fort of the Jordan. He was a very different Shammai in this instance than he was before. Before he had cursed David. He had called down the wrath of God, as it were, um, cursed him in every way. And now he comes, broken, uh, repentant, confessing his sins, saying that he was the first of all the tribe of Joseph to greet David. And Abishai, who's Joab's brother, is immediately ready to off him these sons of Zeruiah it seems like they always have their hand on their sword and so when David meets Shammai I'm sure he's starting to draw that sword out because he's thinking red meat we're gonna get some vengeance on this guy that cursed David I'm gonna defend his honor I'm gonna yank my sword out and of course David stops him and as he said as I said while reading the text it was sort of like when Peter wanted to fight the soldiers who were coming uh, to get Jesus in the garden he said get thee behind me Satan he said it to Peter a couple of times in the New Testament and that is essentially what David says he said let him let him have his word and so Shammai comes to him with all kinds of apologies bringing with him representation of the tribe of Joseph Uh, and Abishai is something of a Satan figure here, and David felt that the day of victory is a day of mercy. To be sure, Abishai, according to the law of God in the Old Testament, had grounds for uh, killing someone who had cursed the anointed one, the leader of of, uh, Israel. But David shows here magnanimity, a great spirit of compassion, And so what was generally done in the ancient Near East when a king had been exiled and was coming back was he would dole out gifts and clemency upon his accession to the throne. And so David is at the uh, gate and his verdict is stood. Now Ziba and Mephibosheth show up. Now Ziba had been a longtime servant of Saul. We've heard of him for a good while. We also know who Mephibosheth is. Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. And Jonathan entered into a covenant with David that he would take care of Jonathan's family. And so David had invited this lame guy named Mephibosheth who um, was a descendant of Saul, the grandson of Saul, uh, the son of Jonathan, David's closest friend in life. And so he showed kindness to him. He invited him there. Mephibosheth lived in a place called Lo Debar. I always love to say this. In the Hebrew, Lo means no, and Debar means thing. You put no and thing together, and you got what? That's where he lived. Now this time, when he comes, he hadn't taken care of his lame foot. He hadn't washed his clothes. He hadn't trimmed his beard. He hadn't done anything to his hair because he was demonstrating to David that he had been in mourning. And he tells David this story where he was supposed to be able to get on a donkey and go. When Zib, Ziba left, Ziba exercised treachery, came and told David a big fat lie about why Mephibosheth didn't show up Mephibosheth gets the chance to express what really happened in his eyes and so David does the pre-Solomon thing he cuts the baby in half so to speak in other words he says half of it will go to Ziba I don't know who's telling the truth and I don't know who's lying but we're just going to half it down the middle Mephibosheth you take your half Ziba you take your half get out of my face sort of is what David did And you may not agree with that, but in that case, that was probably all he could righteously do. So David, again, acted as a judge. And uh, if you know anything about Solomon's proposal in 1 Kings 3 for the people arguing over the infant was to cut uh, the baby in half, and then the mother, the real mother, gave it to the other woman because she didn't want her child to die. Therefore, Solomon found out. If this was a test, Mephibosheth got an A-plus on this one, demonstrating that he was a true son of Jonathan. And then David's final encounter was with an old warrior, an old friend named Barzillai, the Gileadite. He had brought food to David in chapter 17 at Mennah and David wanted to return the favor by inviting uh, Barzillai to share his food in Jerusalem. Bar in anybody's name means son. Zillai, I don't know what that means, but that's who he was. He's 80 years old and he didn't want to go. He's 80 and he said, I can't taste food anymore. Why do I need to sit at the king's banquet table and eat the best that there is to offer? I'm 80, food means nothing to me. He said, I can't even hear the women singing uh, and the men singing. And he said, it's just too much of a bother. Just let me stay here. Let me die at home. Let me be buried with my family. And you take the guy I'm recommending, Kimham, who I don't know any more about, don't know much about him. You take him with you. And so David goes through these three people on his way in. And David came to Gilgal. And the tensions between the tribes were starting to come to a boil. And the men of Israel were angry at the men of Judah, especially the ones who brought jo- uh, David across the Jordan before the rest of Israel could get there. The crossing of Jordan, again, is huge in the history of Israel. It's very symbolic of so much. That's why they all wanted to be there. It was a key moment in the history of the nation. And yet, David went on with just a few of the tribes of Israel, but mostly the tribes of Judah and so that is where we are but how do we conclude a message like this the story of David played a significant role in the apologetics for the first Christians in the first century there was a big credibility gap that they suffered uh, in their central claim that Jesus was God's promised king For Jesus had lived his life on the margins with no palace and no army. Most damning of all, his life ended in defeat and execution. How could anyone seriously ever believe that Jesus was the Messiah? Messiahs don't do that. Messiahs ride into town, triumphant, on a white stallion and announce A chicken in every pot, and a car in every garage, I don't know. But they come in with a message of of greatness, and yet Jesus' death was ignominious. But on the road to Emmaus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ claims the disciples should have realized that the Christ would suffer. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus and his sufferings. In chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, we saw that the story of David was a key piece of that evidence and the trajectory of the life of Israel's greatest king was suffering followed by glory, although in a limited sense. Which leads me to talk, just uh, for the balance of our time, about something that I think is very important, and that is the nature of the kingdom of God. When Christian believers pray uh, for the kingdom of God, as in the Lord's Prayer, we're praying for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. On the night before his execution, in the upper room discourse, Jesus promised his disciples that he would come again. When we uh, see how that night was in important ways, like the darkest days in the kingdoms or King David's life, when he reject, was rejected by his own people, the nation of Israel, and fled from uh, Jerusalem across the Jordan River and into the wilderness, this parallels uh, the experiences of Jesus and also highlights differences. David is a type of Christ. Many things that happened in his life parallel the life of Jesus. For example, David's running from Saul in the beginning, although anointed to be king, not yet occupying the throne, running from his adversary Saul, Saul trying to kill him every other day, was very much like Jesus's early after he was baptized in the Jordan River and the Holy Spirit came upon him and drove him in the wilderness to what? Be tempted of the devil for 40 days. And so David's life, pointed forward to a Redeemer who would come, the Lord Jesus, and suffer in the wilderness in ways. Jesus' death upon the cross was referred to in the Scriptures as an exile, as being separated from the presence of God upon the cross when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so David points in his exile across the Jordan River to the exile of Jesus upon the cross. But in Jesus's case, he returned on the third day and was seen by well over 500 people. And he had a 40-day period of post-resurrection appearances. As we follow David's return to Jerusalem after the victory over Absalom and his rebellion, we now look at that at the promise that our king, the Lord Jesus, will come again. It's important to understand that this promise Jesus is making has already been substantially fulfilled, but not yet completely fulfilled. Jesus did come again, in one respect, to the disciples. On the third day after his death, he was raised from the dead, and he came to his disciples who were all astonished to see him. This was the return of the king just as he promised. They saw him. They touched him. He ate with them. He appeared in rooms with them. I remember R.C. Sproul in seminary. Somebody said, did Jesus walk through the wall? He said, I don't know. The text doesn't say it. It just said he appeared in the room. He says, you can make it walk on all fours if you want to, but he appeared in the room. And they knew he was alive. He was alive but different. And so Jesus again promised to come again and thus the appearance to his disciples of the 40 days of his resurrection and ascension to heaven, Jesus promised, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. He's talking here about the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells believers. This is the return of the king known that every Christian believer uh, receives it is the presence of Jesus by his spirit indwelling our bodies but there's more still the return of our king and all of his glory is still a future event you see David's life is eschatological it points to the end of all things David tries as humanly possible. And the only reason that kingdom survives, the only reason anything survives, is to set the stage for the coming of the one who will make all things new. So what is our hope? Why do, why do we even have anything resembling order and life? It is because the kingdom of God is now present in this world and ultimately will be Uh, brought to its fullness in the consummation when Christ returns and uh, causes the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, to descend upon this earth, and the new heavens and the new earth will be a reality we will participate in, and that is the underlying note and music that is underneath all of the Scriptures. It's even in Genesis, by the way. Our hope is in the second coming of Jesus Christ. And that is why anything (laughs) still exists. The fact that God is providentially bringing all things to a goal. And so when he ascended into heaven, he told his disciples he would come back in the same manner as they saw him go. And the New Testament describes the still future of Jesus as the revelation or unveiling of Jesus Christ. In other words, it will be an open and undeniable manifestation of something that is already true, something that has already happened. Jesus is Lord today he has begun his reign he has won the victory we are waiting for that to be completely revealed and on that day every knee will bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father and that is what David's life is pointing to because David is a sinner like you and me and you see it don't you You see the mess his family was you see the mistakes he makes in his kingdom you see what he did with Bathsheba you see how he set up Uriah the Hittite had him killed you see how he was a horrible father a dysfunctional father who was passive and never engaged with his children alienated lost everything that a man would live for David's not the answer That kingdom is not the answer. That nation is not the answer. The answer is the one to whom Jesus is pointing. You ever get in your car going on a vacation or flying or whatever, and your kids ask you that interminable question, what? Are we there yet? Now, let's say you're driving to Disney World or Disneyland and Anaheim's closer. And you begin to drive on the I-15, and you start seeing signs, billboards on the road that say Disneyland. And it's a big ad. Of course, your kids see it. Everybody gets excited that wants to go. But you don't pull your car over and stop at the sign, do you? The sign is simply a pointer to the ultimate reality. That's who David is. David is a sign. But the ultimate reality he's pointing to ain't in Anaheim. It's, <laughs> it's at the right hand of the Father in heaven, and he is coming. Nothing else has to happen. He could come imminently at any moment and change and radicalize everything. And so while all of this is a political controversy and civil unrest in this chapter, it's a picture of our culture, it's a picture of our world today. Where there is little or no peace anywhere. And yet, the Prince of Peace will come. And he will usher in his kingdom. That, and that alone, is our hope. That's our hope. That doesn't mean we don't attempt great things for God. That doesn't mean we try to bring justice and try to bring the gospel to the world. Yes, we do those things, but we know underneath it all, our only hope is for King Jesus to come and fix this mess. Bow your heads and close your eyes. Please, Heavenly Father, we thank you for... This narrative, this story in the life of David, and how, as flawed as David was, and as flawed as his kingdom was, and as great as Solomon started out, we realize that the ultimate coming of the kingdom is not yet. It has not uh, come yet. And we look forward to it. That's why we pray, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. And we do pray, Lord Jesus, that when you have called all of your people, when you have called those whom you love to belong to you and yourself, we pray that you would come, and come soon, and fix the mess. Because it's too big, and too messy, and we're too flawed. Even believers are flawed. Now, Fathers, we continue to worship you. Let us give now as those who are grateful that we've been bought and purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, a very precious blood. We were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold, but by incorruptible things like the shed blood of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen.